Is Gail's up, right? You're up. Okay. Gail and Casey. If you've got a Bible, you can open up to Exodus chapter 1. You going to children's church, Max? Good job, buddy. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 1, and, and we're just going to finish chapter 1. So we'll start in, in verse 8. This is what we read. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall li- uh, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and again, all you've given us. Uh, Father, pray that today that, that we not see this as just a, a nice, neat, cute Sunday school story, but that we see the grit of this story, um, the darkness of this story. Uh, and Father, that we see that, that that's the beauty of the Bible, is that it, it doesn't try to gloss things or clean them up, but that it is real world and real life. And so I pray that we could see that today. Uh, And I pray that we just see how you're at work behind the scenes. Even when things seem bleak and dark and difficult, you are always working. And you're always working for our good and for your glory. And so I pray today that that text, uh, that would come out today and that we would see that and that ultimately we would see that through the cross, that you are for us and not against us. Uh, I pray if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that today, uh, as the gospel is preached and proclaimed, that you would save and you would change lives today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So last week we started Exodus and we looked at the first seven verses, but, but really what we did is, is, if you remember, we spent the bulk of our time in Genesis chapter 50. And in Genesis chapter 50, as, as, as Moses is drawing the story of Genesis to a close, if you remember, he begins Exodus with the word and. So in other words, he wants you to see Genesis and Exodus as just one continuation but what he told the people of Israel at the end of Exodus or Genesis chapter 50 was he reminds them of a few things. That first and foremost, that God's servants come and go, but God's plan to rescue and save and deliver his people endures forever and ever and ever. 
He reminds them that the home of God's people is not in Egypt, but it's in Canaan. It's beyond where they're at right now. He reminds them that God is sovereign over everything we go through in this life. You see that in in Joseph's words where he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That God used all this bad to bring about him, my good and his glory. That there are no wasted sufferings for the people of God. And then finally, Moses reminds the people of God's covenant promise that he made to Abraham that he would create a nation and that from that nation would come a savior and a rescuer. And so the reason Moses does all this is because he's writing to remind some people that are about to go through some very, very dark days. And as I said in my prayer earlier, I hope we see the grit and the grime of this story. Like one of the things that frustrates me to no end is when people try to clean the Bible up to make it more appealing to others. Right? Like, well, they'll say things that, that they think what they're doing is they're trying to help God out or they're trying to help God have better PR because some of the stuff in the Bible is just hard to take and it's hard to read. And so they're like, ah, well, let me just twist the scripture a little bit to make it say something it never said or to make it more appealing. I'm sick Monday, okay? So Sunday night, Lucy gets sick. Then Mariah and I both wake up sick, which is awful, okay? Because you don't want mama down while you're down. Right, men? Because we're, we're, we're awful, all right? She could have it 10 times worse than you, but she's tougher than you are, right? And so she's still dealing with all the kids, and I'm laying in bed going, ah! And she was probably worse than I was. And so since I had nothing to do, you know, just punish myself some more, get on Facebook. And so I did, and somebody puts this post on there from some faith healer that basically said, you don't have to be sick, And it was this long, drawn-out post, and it had all these Bible verses to be like, sickness is a choice. It's something you choose to do, right? God never intended for his children to be sick. You can speak against that sickness. You rebuke that sickness. And I'm sitting there barely able to lift up my head going, man, this guy is full of it, right? I get why he's doing it. He's trying to make the Bible look more appealing, or he's trying to to make it look like, hey, this is something that you could have if you'll just tap into it. But like I said, that's not something the Bible does. I mean, if you read the Bible and you read the stories of the heroes of the faith in the Bible, they're terrible people. Like, not a lot of them were very good people at all. Right? And and, and as you you read and as you study, you, you see that people get sick in the Bible, I mean, there's great evidence that Paul dealt with malaria, that he had bad eyesight, that he went through some very difficult things. And so for you to try to clean the Bible up and be like, well, you never have to get sick, that's a bunch of garbage, okay? And so what I I, I tell you all that to say again, the Bible's grimy, and the Bible shows us that God works through broken people. And that should be an encouragement to all of us when we read the text. And so like I said, the, the, as we look at this today, our, our temptation is always to go, well, this is the, the flannel board, right? That, that I did when I was a kid and the, the cute story and all that. And this is not a cute story. So, so look with me if you will. Let's, let's start in, in verse 8. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt, right? And and note how Moses writes, who did not know Joseph. He had no idea who this Hebrew guy Joseph was. Didn't know him, didn't care to know him. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So come, let us deal shrewdly with them. 
lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies, they fight against us, and they escape from the land. So again, Joseph dies. We have a new Pharaoh. Did not know Joseph, okay? Understand that. He didn't know him. And so what this new Pharaoh does is he begins to follow what we like to call the genocide playbook, right? He takes it out. He begins to use it. So throughout all of human history, what Pharaoh does is the playbook that every dictator has used throughout history. You, you, and you want to take a subset of your population and you want to make that subset seem subhuman and begin to work towards your destruction, you do exactly what Pharaoh does right here. So you can see this in Hitler's Germany with the way he did to the Jews. You can see it in Mao's China with the way he did it to Christians. You can look at South Africa at the Africaneers and how they, uh, they brought about apartheid. And it's just repeated over and over again throughout history. And so the first thing that he does in the first play out of the genocide playbook is in verse 10. It says, come, let us do, deal shrewdly with the people. That word shrewdly in Hebrew, basically it means politics. So the first thing Pharaoh does is he's like, man, we got we to start with politics. We got to start there, right? And so what he does, like all these guys, is he begins to develop this narrative and he creates a narrative. And you want to guess what the narrative is built around? It's built around fear. If you can get the people afraid, then you can begin to get the people to believe whatever you want them to. So Pharaoh starts off and he's like, man, all these Hebrews. Can you believe how many there are? I mean, when I was a kid at King Tut High, it was all Egyptians in my class, right? But now my kid, he's the only Egyptian in his class. That's it. I mean, they're going to take our jobs. National security risk, these guys, right? I mean, they're unpredictable, these Hebrews. They could join with our enemies. They could fight against us. We're all going to die, right? See the political shrewdness that's going on there? It's 2020. That doesn't happen anymore. Don't worry. You're cool, all right? There's no more of that. Don't worry. That one hit a little too close to home or something. Golly. So the next step then is to go from politics to then implementing those politics. Look at, look at verse 11. So he's got everybody whipped up. They're scared. And he says, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they repressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So he says they set taskmasters over them to afflict them. Verse 13 says that they ruthlessly made them work as, as slaves. They made their lives bitter. They made their lives hard. Verse 14 says that they were treated ruthlessly, or, or more literally, the way that reads, is that they were broken down. They put laws in place to break the people down, to treat the people horribly. See, it's the idea of legalized violence, that it was okay to go and hit a Hebrew or beat a Hebrew. Nobody's going to get in trouble for that. Besides, they're Hebrews. They're a subset of the population. They're subhuman. We don't want them around. And so then Pharaoh goes from um, politics to implementation, and then look at verse 15 what he does. He goes to manipulation. That's the next thing. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill them, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. And so now he brings in 
these two midwives, because Pharaoh knows, listen, violence is one thing, but for me to legally start killing people, we're not quite there yet, okay? I haven't got everybody to that point yet. So he brings in these two women, Shifra and Pua, and these two women were not the only midwives, okay? More than likely, they were the head of all the midwives, and so they had the most control, the most power, and so he brings them in, and he's all warm and friendly. He's like, hey, do y'all want something to drink? Hey, anything I can do for you guys? Hey, listen, here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to kill all the boys, right? So when these, ba- these women have babies, kill the boys. Which, ladies, think about that. Here's what he's saying. He's saying little girls have no worth. Little girls have no value. I mean, little girls can be used. Little girls can be trafficked. Little girls can be sold as sex slaves. Little girls are no real threat to the empire. So Pharaoh says this, we're going to kill the boys, and then we're just going to breed out all the girls. That's what we're going to do. See how dark this is? It's dark, it's sickening, it's manipulation. And Pharaoh can still go home and sleep at night after everything that he's doing, okay? And then finally, if you look down at verse 22, because his plan doesn't work, we'll come back to that. It says, then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So when his manipulation doesn't take place, doesn't work the way he wants it to, he now puts the law in place that, hey, if you see a Hebrew boy, kill him. Throw him into the Nile. And so I just want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to think about somebody who is a different ethnicity or a different nationality than you was able legally to just walk up, take your son out of your hands, walk away, kill the baby boy, and you are absolutely powerless to do anything about it. Like, like, I can't fathom that. Like, I can't imagine that for our church. Right? We have so many babies in this church. Praise the Lord. Because babies are a sign of a church that is alive. You got no babies, you got a dead church. Right? You got babies in the sanctuary, you got babies in the nursery, you have to make a cry room because you got babies. That's a good thing. But to be gathered with babies... And have somebody be able to just walk in the church and say, yeah, I'll take that baby from you. Thank you very much. Walk out and kill the child and not have any legal ramifications is a very scary thing to think about. So see, can you see how dark things have become for the people of Israel? This is a horrific, bloody thing that's happening. But underneath it all, I want you to see what God's doing. So look back at verse 10. So Pharaoh says, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and war breaks out, and they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So in verse 10, it says that let's deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. In verse 12, it says that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread abroad. Now my Hebrew is terrible, so I'm not even gonna try to repeat what is said in the Hebrew. But what it is, is it's a pun in the Hebrew. It's almost, it's almost just taking Pharaoh's words in verse 10 and flipping them around in verse 12. And so what it's saying is the joke was on Pharaoh. Ha ha, 
right? So Harold says, we've got to do something about these people. There's too many of them. We have to thin the herd. Let's kill the little boys. That should do it. But God has other plans. And so by the time you get to chapter 12, right, how many went down? Does anybody remember? 70 men, right? 70 men in their households. By the time you get to chapter 12, it says that 600,000 men Now, we're not talking women, children, and all their households. We're just talking 600,000 men leave Egypt. And so what God is trying to get you to see through the text is that the most powerful man in the world has set his mind to destroy the people of God, and every time he does something to tighten his grip on the people, all he does is loosen his bonds. That's all that happens. And I'm not saying this was easy. I'm not saying that babies weren't thrown into the Nile. Folks, it happened. It was dark, it was gruesome, but it does show us that no man or government can destroy the church of God. That God has a plan for his church and he will see that plan through until the day he returns. So so what I want you to see is this, just two things in this text this morning that I think are important for us. So here's the first one, is that God is working through all of this. Now, Now he might not be working out front, he's not, but he's working behind the scenes. And see, I think the thing is, uh, for us as, as Christians is that I think a lot of times we know that God is active. We know that God is working. But if you're honest, it's very hard for you to see it sometimes, isn't it? Like, like it's hard for us to know exactly what he's up to. And I think this is where it's helpful and it's okay for you and I to feel small when it comes to how God works. That it's okay for us to go... I don't know. You know, God knows. We don't. And that's okay to admit that he's God and we're not. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first gospel, listen to this. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what God's saying is that I'm going to send a rescuer. And the serpent's going to bite that rescuer, and he's going to think he's going to win, but he can't. See, in attempting to eliminate the offspring of the woman, the chosen people of God, Pharaoh and all Egypt with him are acting as Satan's pawns. And all their murderous schemes will not achieve their end. See, Pharaoh thinks, hey, I've got the woman's offspring. I'm going to snuff it out. Satan's thinking, I'm going to win. I'm going to stop God's plan that he issued back in Genesis chapter 3. All right? And he thinks he's winning, but in the end, what happens? He can't stop it. Right? 70 go in, 600,000 walk out. You can't stop what he's doing. And the oppression doesn't end when the people leave Egypt. Like if you continue to read their story and you read the story of the Bible, there are many instances where God seemed unmindful of his people suffering and that evil had the upper hand. And there is nowhere this is more evident than in the cross of Jesus Christ, right? That when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Satan's thinking, I bit him, I won, I got the seed of the woman. But then three days later, Jesus rises again and walks out of the grave and says, no, you didn't win at all. He defeated Satan. He paid for our sins once and for all. And so though he has won the victory over Satan, sin, and death, listen, trouble and hardship and persecution remain for the people of God. But because Jesus rose, our victory over them is already assured, folks. Jay read this in the beginning. 
Romans 8, 37, knowing all these things, we are more than what? Conquerors through him who loved us. See, when we look to the cross, when we go through dark times and we don't know where God's at and we don't know how he's looking, the Bible always tells us to look to the cross and see that God is for us and he is not against us. Because he did not spare his own son, but sent him to lay down his life for sinners like you and I. That is good news. And see, you're going to see this throughout the story of Exodus, that everything Pharaoh does to destroy the people of God just ends up serving God's overarching purpose to glorify his name, to make his name known to the nation, and to rescue his people from oppression. And as I said earlier, I think we need to remember this because in our lives, a lot of times we don't see what God's doing. Now, now we'll get glimpses of it sometimes, but it's always in retrospect. I'm almost 40, all right? I'm a man. I'm almost 40. And I think I'm finally, I'm finally at the age I'm at getting to the place where I can look back and finally see what God was, was doing. Like I'm getting to the place where I can say, thank you, God. Thank you for protecting me. Thank you for watching out for me. Thank you for saying no all those times where I was going, just say yes, just say yes. Because now I can look back and say, you were looking out for me. Like I was telling Mariah the other day is like, I look back on my childhood and like, like if you want a picture of dysfunction, hello, okay? So if you wonder sometimes why I got problems, <laughs> okay? Um, it was dysfunctional as all get out. And there's just times like I look back and I go, golly, why didn't I end up in such a worse spot? Like, like I had every opportunity to do some serious damage in my life because nobody was around, nobody was paying attention, nobody was watching over Byron. Byron was left alone a lot of times. And yet somehow, some way, God said no enough to certain situations or protected me from certain situations where I didn't do so much damage that, that it would be irreparable or something that I'd still have to work through. Somehow, some way, he protected me. I didn't see it at the time, but now I can look back and go, thank you, God, for doing that. See, God cares for us even when we can't see us. And I'll be honest with you guys, I don't know how to talk about God's care behind the scenes to those who've been abused or raped or had other traumas in their life. I don't have all the answers to that. I don't. But I'll tell you this, I do know this is why God's given us the church See, this should be a place where it's okay for people to come in and where people with doubts can come in and, and they can wrestle with those doubts. See, see, the version of Christianity that says once you get saved and it all just makes sense and you never wrestle with doubt anymore and you never struggle with sin anymore and it's just a rocket ride all the way to the top, that's garbage. That's, that's a Kendrick's Brothers movie. It's not real life. It's fiction. And it's not rooted in the Word of God. I mean, seriously, Look at the people in the Bible. Have you ever read King David? A man after God's own heart, but yet he can write psalm after psalm after psalm going, why did you leave me? Why have you forsaken me? Where are you at? He struggles with doubt. He wrestles with it. Jeremiah at one point tells God, you seduced me. You tricked me. You lied to me. Because every time I open my mouth to tell these people what you want me to tell them, I get beat up and thrown in a ditch. This isn't cool, God. He was the first pastor, right? I mean, what about Hosea? Poor guy, God's like, hey, I want you to marry this working girl, and she's just going to leave you over and over and over again, but I want you to stay in that. You don't think there were some times he was going, what in the world are you doing? And even outside of the Bible, man, one of the guys who brings a lot of comfort to me is Charles Purgeon, 
who's called the prince of preachers because most people say he's one of the greatest preachers who ever lived and the man struggled with depression on a level that you can't even imagine. One of the things that he said was this, is that persons can bear a bleeding body and even a wounded spirit, but a soul conscious of desertion by God is beyond conception unendurable. This was a man who loved the Lord deeply, but he wrestled with doubts. So listen, this morning, if you have doubts and you're struggling and you're in that place where you're like, man, I don't know what God's doing, or or, or you don't see him working, the answer, Christian brothers and sisters, is not to put the fake Christian face on, okay? Right? You know that one, right? How you doing? I'm good, brother. Better than I deserve. If I was any better, I'd have to be twins to enjoy it. Right? That, that, that junk that we pull out here all the time, where everything's burning and it's a dumpster fire in your life, but you want to act like it's all okay, that's not the answer right here. Don't do it. Find community with your brothers and sisters. Allow people to love you, pray for you, and walk alongside you. And listen, I'll tell you what you'll find. What you'll find is that so many of us in this room have the same story that you do. You'll find so many people that will say the same thing and say, listen, man, I don't know either. I don't know what God's doing. I don't understand it, but hey, let's look at the cross together. Let's see how Jesus is for us and not against us. Let's look to him. Let's look to the scriptures. Let's wrestle with this together until the Lord brings peace in that area of your heart. Right? It may take 10 years. I'm cool. I'll walk with you through it. Let's do this thing together. See, folks, God is always working behind the scenes, even when you don't see it, even when I don't see it. That's the first thing. But then look at the second thing. The second thing is that, that God always is always working through the weak and the powerless to accomplish his purposes. He's always working through the weak and powerless to accomplish his purposes. And that's not what we're going after, is it? We don't look for the weak and the powerless. We want the best looking and we want the most talented, right? Like, we're going to go watch football here in a little bit. We all want Kittle, right? The tight end for the San Francisco 49ers. We want that guy. He's big, he's good looking, he's powerful. That's the guy that's going to help us. And God's always says, that's not who I want and that's not who I use, right? Look back at verse 15. So so remember, Pharaoh brings in these two midwives. He's gonna try to manipulate them. And so the king of of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them family. So understand this, at this point in history... Women have no place in society. So, so in this time uh, period, you have animals and then you have women, right? And so it's about like this, okay? Animals, women, just, just maybe just a little bit of her, right? At this time period, you trade your daughter for anything, right? You need new farm equipment. You need a new cow. You need whatever. You say, oh, here's my daughter. You can marry her, right? She's two, but, you know, marry her when she's 15. Women are second-class citizens. But what I want you to see is look how God works. So who is Pharaoh scared of? Pharaoh's scared of all the men, right? He's like, kill all the boys. Who cares about all the girls? 
But God has the last laugh. You see in the first four chapters of Exodus, you're going to see that it's women who God uses to sow the seeds of Egypt's destruction. He doesn't use men. You're not even going to have Moses if his wife doesn't think quickly and prevent God from killing Moses in chapter 4. It's great. See, what you see in these two women is you see courage that a lot of men lack. So Pharaoh says, I want you to kill babies. And they say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not doing it. Not going to happen. See, because what the Bible says is that these two courageous women, they feared God more than they feared men. So they refused to violate God's creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And what a great text, because what are we celebrating today, or what are we remembering today? Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a day where we say, hey, we should value life. We should not kill unborn children. Something interesting, too, to note is that Sanctity of Life has always butted right up against MLK Day, too. And we see this very clearly in the text as well, is that sanctity of life, right? Republicans, were really good. Well, as long as they're in the womb, but once they come out, we forget all about them. So sanctity of life means that, listen, we value the life of all people, of all races, all colors. And we see that laid out in this text. And so these women, knowing that they could lose their lives, refuse to comply with Pharaoh's command, and when they're called in, I love what they do, right? And a lot of scholars have wrestled over this because they lie. I mean, they lie, and so they're like, well, they lied, so is that wrong? That's evil? I mean, God doesn't want us to lie. But but one commentator put it this way, and I thought it was the best. He says, they tell such a whopper of a lie that absolutely nobody could believe it. So Pharaoh calls me, he's like, why aren't you killing them? And they're like, man, Pharaoh, listen, these Hebrew women, they're pest dispensers. I mean, they just lift their leg and the baby comes out. Like, it's crazy. And so by the time we get there, all we got to do is mop up and go home. We ain't even had time. I mean, you, you wouldn't believe it. And I love it because the scriptures say that God dealt well with the midwives and it gave them families. And because of their obedience, the people multiplied and they grew very strong. So everybody listen to me. Never believe the lie that you're too small. Because see, it's the power of God at work in the tininess of our lives that gives God the glory and it brings us joy. So listen to me on this. Here's the thing that I think would change our church, and and not just our church, but it would change our community, is that if we as believers would recognize that in all the things that we do, everything, that we're not in those things for us, but we're there, but we're we're in them for him. We're not in it for us, but we're in it for him. See, there's freedom found in that place when we realize that our jobs, our hobbies, all the things that we are involved in, we're not in those things to bring glory to our name. We're in those things to bring glory to his name, and we're in it for him. See, we need to stop worrying so much about success or failure, prestige or building our own kingdoms, whatever that is, and just give ourselves over to obedience. That is the most beautiful thing that we can do as Christians is to be obedient to what the Lord's called us to do. See, the Hebrew women weren't really more vigorous than the Egyptian women, okay? A lot of people read that and be like, oh, wow, they were, they were just more vigorous. They weren't, okay? It was the midwives. They feared God more than they feared man. So in other words, here's what it means. It means that their fear was appropriately placed. So instead of fearing man, they said, you know what? 
The one who created me and saved me is more to be feared than mankind. See, if Christians, as Christians, we would fear God more than man, that would change everything for us. And listen, I'm not talking at the national level. That's important. Do your role there, right, and fear God in that level. I'm talking locally. So if we said pleasing the one who made me and died for me is more important than making people like me, right, People pleaser, right? That's hard, I know. Imagine what God could do with us in our little town to push back the darkness that's all around us. If we just said, I want to be obedient. I want to do what you've called me to do. I want to fear you more than what man says. And we begin to walk in that. He could change everything for us. So what we see in this text is that God is working behind the scenes even when we can't see him. Maybe some of you need to hear that. Maybe you're in a dark time right now. Maybe you can't see it. Would you rest in the fact that he is still working and he hasn't forgotten you? If you doubt it, look to the cross. He's for you. He's not against you. Find community. Stop hiding. We got too many of us that are hiding. We don't want to share our lives with other people. We don't want anybody to know what's going on. We don't want anybody to come into our lives and we just want to stand back and be like, it's all good, it's okay, it's okay. And you're just white-knuckling the heck out of it. Find community. Let people pray with you and love you and walk with you. And then secondly, never believe the lie that you're too tiny for God to use you. Because it's in the smallness that God works and he gets the glory and he does amazing things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you for this text of scripture and I thank you for, for what it shows us. I thank you that even in the darkest times of our lives, that you're still working. You may be in the background, you may not be out front, but you are working, and you're working for our good and your glory. And so I pray that today that we could press into that and we could trust that and we could lean into that. Father, I pray that as believers that we would be obedient, that we would understand that in the things that we do, we're not in those things for us, but for you. And that we could work to bring about um, your kingdom and to bring about um, things that would give you glory, Father, in everything that we do. I thank you so much for all that you've given us. I thank you for this church. I pray today if anybody in here doesn't know you, that as we preach the gospel, as we talked about what Christ has done for us through the cross, that today you've stirred their heart and that you've saved them, you've changed their lives, and they would not leave until they come and talk to me or, or talk to a friend today. We love you, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?